Hello and welcome to Steph TV. I'm your host, Nick Huzar. I'm also the co-founder of OfferUp. And, you know, I spent uh, a lot of time um, trying to figure out how do I impact the planet? I thought I could Google this. Uh, and it was really hard to measure. And I decided to start Steph TV and interview really interesting thought leaders on topics around climate because it is complicated. Uh, but my hope is to make it simple and and find really interesting guests to talk about. And so today I'm excited to have Tony Pan with his company, Modern Hydrogen. And uh, you know, hydrogen is really interesting. It's the most abundant element in the universe. And I also think it's a really important topic because I think one of the biggest challenges of our time is harnessing energy in different types of forms. And clearly there's lots of demands on electricity. Um, you know, I see a lot of innovation uh, with battery technology. But that's not always practical, especially with heavy machinery, things like planes and uh, big trucks and things like that. So, you know, hydrogen is a, you know, a very abundant element, but it's also one you got to be uh, very thoughtful about how you move it around. And so I'm sure Tony will uh, shed some light on all these things as we get into it today. But Tony, thanks for being here. We'd love to maybe have you introduce yourself and talk about like, how did you get into this space? Awesome. Thanks, Nick. And I mean, we, we are, uh, for the listeners, uh, we're both Seattle entrepreneurs, so we've known each other for a bit and I'm a avid user of OfferUp. It's uh, one of the great apps of our times. So I've been doing modern hydrogen. We are eight years old in the Seattle area and we basically decarbonize natural gas to produce clean hydrogen. And I got into this space really by working with an incubator in Seattle to tackle hard to de decarbonize problems. Energy is one of the biggest sectors in the world economy. We need to decarbonize many aspects. But even when I joined the fight about a decade ago, the climate fight, it was already pretty clear that solar and wind were going to go on an exponential decline of their production uh, of their electricity costs. And that would be a very good tool set to decarbonize our society. But it was also very clear to experts that that was not enough. To give you a sense, right, like only one third of CO2 emissions are associated with electricity. And even for that, most experts don't think solar and wind can get us 100% of the way there. And even if it could, again, that's only one third of the picture. So you need all these additional new, new tool sets and technologies to tackle the harder decarbonized sectors. I work with the incubator to investigate many of those problems and that led to the creation of modern hydrogen. You know, I know in the past we had talked a little bit about kind of how your, your company works, you know, kind of figuring out what is the optimal way to do it. And at one point we talked about our natural gas grid in the US and how it's the largest, I believe, in, in the world. And are there ways to potentially leverage that? Are you still focusing on that? Or is there kind of a new approach to how you think about scaling your company? That's still right. I would say if there's two words to describe the value prop of what our company is doing, it's skip infrastructure. Here's the gist. Hydrogen is seen as the holy grail fuel because it's pretty much the only fuel you can burn without any CO2 emissions. So that's why there's a lot of investments and discussion and hype in the sector. But hydrogen has an Achilles heel. It's the lightest element in the universe that makes it very hard to transport and distribute. I'm talking about moving around and storing it. To give you a sense of some numbers, if you compressed 
hydrogen as a gas to like a compressed tank and compare it with a, the same gasoline tank by volume, the hydrogen tank would only have 10% the energy compared to the gasoline tank. Again, it's just because hydrogen is very light, like per unit volume, it does not contain a lot of energy. You could move it around as a liquid if you'd cool it to very low temperatures, but the issue is you need to get to negative 250 Celsius before hydrogen turns from a gas to liquid. So it's exceedingly expensive and impractical to try to turn hydrogen into liquid and move it around that way. And, and so last but not least, you can move hydrogen around with pipes. And we do know how to do that, but you need brand new pipes. To give you a sense, the country today probably has less than 2,000 miles of dedicated hydrogen pipelines. In contrast, we already have 3 million miles of natural gas pipelines in the United States alone. So that took a trillion dollars and a whole century to build up, but you cannot reuse that to transport hydrogen directly. You would have to spend another century and probably another trillion dollars to build up infrastructure to move hydrogen around to the same scale of natural gas. So we tech nerds sort of took, took a look at this and realized, hey, natural gas, it's chemical composition is CH4, one carbon for hydrogen. So it's already majority hydrogen. We're already moving all this hydrogen around. It's just stuck to this pesky carbon atom that we don't like because when we burn it, it emits CO2 that causes global warming. So we're thinking, hey, why don't you just reuse all that infrastructure? The gas is already being transported to the end user. At the very last point of the pipe, pull out the carbon atom, then you're just left with clean hydrogen. Then you can get hydrogen to all these different places across the country without any need to build new infrastructure. Not only is that going to be a lot cheaper for the deliver delivered price of hydrogen, but we think this can decarbonize, frankly, a lot faster. Because again, if you're going to wait for the pipelines to be built, new ones, you're probably, you know, we'll, you and I will be dead by the time that's built up. So this is why we like our approach. Mm -hmm. And back to the historical concerns around hydrogen is moving it around, right? And, and I love the fact that we have such an abundant grid that you can tap into, and now you're minimizing the need to move hydrogen around. And now you can also give it these other practical applications. So, you know, battery technology, it's awesome. It's, there's so much innovation investment in that space. The downside of batteries is they're really heavy. And so, yep. you know, there's this company, Universal Hydrogen, which I think is great, it was the former CTO of Airbus, and he's He's going to retrofit, uh, you know, these jets that uh, that run on hydrogen. That's probably the only way to decarbonize airplanes. You cannot put batteries in planes. It's way too heavy. It's just not going to work. Uh, same thing with, um, you know, trucks and fleets. And I, I read uh, that article this last week at GeekWire. You know, Kenworth has their they're announcing this new hydrogen, you know, fuel truck, and a lot of these big heavy yep. trucks are going to run on hydrogen. Again, it makes sense because you're not going to have, you know, 10 ton bat batteries in these things. So now the challenge back to what you're addressing, which I think makes a lot of sense is like, okay, how do we just tap into it? You know, if that truck's driving across the country, is there a way to get on the side of the road? And, you know, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on how your, your company is now converting this natural gas to hydrogen and how you see that happening. But, you know, I think that that makes a ton of sense because everyone's always scared of the Hindenburg. It's the first thing you mentioned hydrogen to people like, oh, yeah. things are going to blow up. But if you can minimize the amount of the, the, the hydrogen is actually traveling to be able to use, utilize it, then I think it, it creates a safer environment. Oh, it'd be way safer, right? So that's exactly one of the applications of hydrogen, right? Like we, we have a lot of interest in building hydrogen refueling stations. So there'll be other companies downstream that are building the hydrogen trucks, hydrogen planes. That's not what we're in charge of. But we're in charge of, uh, for example, making sure that there's hydrogen supply 
uh, these refueling stations and stuff like that exist. And so it's kind of crazy today. There's been some effort to build the hydrogen refueling stations, but most hydrogen today is made in some centralized plant far, far away and shipped hundreds, sometimes even a thousand miles to the refueling station. Number one, as you've noticed, right? Like, well, now you're, you're like literally today, because there's no pipes, they truck the hydrogen. That's a lot of hydrogen being going on highways, at very large volumes, which of course, if you're concerned about safety, that's not gonna, that's not super safe. Don't run into that and, truck. Yeah. Second of all, right? The, the prices are crazy. If you went to like a hydrogen refueling station in like LA, you'd probably be paying like $15 per kilogram for the hydrogen. And that probably took less than 1.5 or $1 per kilogram to make. So the entire cost of the hydrogen you actually pay for, it's almost all the logistical cost of getting the hydrogen there. It's not the initial production cost. So that's the cost that we're trying to avoid by producing hydrogen on site, wherever you can tap into a natural gas line. Yeah. I mean, that makes a, that makes a ton of sense. So there's a lot of inefficiencies. Now, where, where are you as a, as a company? Are you still kind of incubating and testing this? I know, you know, what, what do you, what kind of applications have you, have you tried? To be very clear, we're, we're at pilot stage, right? So we're, uh, we're, we have pilot units, like going to early customers, not a mass production scale yet. The think of us as at a stage of when Tesla was building, uh, it's and shipping its first Tesla Roadsters. That's how early in the journey we are. FYI, we are a startup. So we're about like 60 people uh, have raised about a hundred million dollars over the years, which in energy is actually not that much money. Uh, that, that's the scale. But what's exciting is that a lot of our customers are some of the biggest energy utilities in the country. We, we like that because they're very sophisticated, right? And in some sense, they see the same issues. They're under tremendous decarbonization pressure from regulators, from the customer base, but they're also very pragmatic. Actually, right, like it's this this climate fight is really, really hard. If you think about the challenges, you, you heard about like Lahaina burning down and now like Hawaiian electric utility, their stock price has been tanked because everybody suspects one of their electricity grid lines got blown by the high winds and sparked the fire. Well, they didn't, they didn't shut it down fast enough. That's that's the that's the the heat they're getting. Yeah, so so it's like, what can you do, right? Like, we will need more electricity, and more electricity lines to to be able to use more renewable solar and wind. And yet, like that takes a lot of time, that, that takes a lot of cost, and that takes a lot of risk, right? I think famously Puget Sound, sorry, not Puget Sound, <laughs> P, the one in California, right? It's the uh, energy equivalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, their, their big utility went bankrupt a few years ago, also because of the wildfires. And it's also because they were pressured by all their regulators. It was easier for them to, to like build solar plants, but not, not maintain their transmission lines. Just the transmission infrastructure is very hard to build. It's NIMBYism and all of that, right? Like, it's funny that the U.S. has 7 million miles of electricity, electricity transmission lines. Uh, took a century to build that too. Yeah. And last year, only a few hundred miles of new ones were permitted. And each each of those permits was like a 15 year journey. Like it took, like people applied 15 years ago and was finally permitted last year. So that's how slow we have the ability to build new infrastructure. And all the utilities know this. So we're actually pretty excited that the utilities see the value prop of what modern hydrogen is doing. And they're like, okay, that, that's a smart solution because yeah. that's using all the money and all the assets that are already in the ground. That's I right. still find a way to decarbonize. It is crazy to think about like my, my parents' generation, all the infrastructure that was built in the US. They're coming out of like World War II. Think about it. The, the, like you said, all, all the, you know, the, the, the highway systems, um, yeah. you know, the electric lines, the gas lines, like massive bridges like we built crazy stuff back then 
And now you look around. I can't remember. I was on, I did a long road trip with my buddy a few weeks ago. When's the last time you've seen a major like highway put in this in anywhere? Right. Yeah. And it, it just I think that back to the point of if you really want to make an impact on the planet, you know, it's super cool that you're able to leverage existing infrastructure because to 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 back to your point to build all these things out like that's 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 just got we got to rethink that we got to reimagine and utilize what we already have because it's not going to happen like it's not, there's no way we're going to build all this stuff fast enough i kind of wish we could but pragmatically it doesn't look like the case well, look how long it takes us to do construction projects yeah you know here, we're here in seattle right like we're building yeah. this light rail system it's gonna be a 15 year project maybe 20 year project yeah, uh, the, the you're like so there was slow. some news that like uh, Washington State got some federal money to investigate some high speed rail between Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland, and the time frame time frame that they're thinking of like 2050. Okay. It just makes you want to pull your hair out, and and it's, well, it's slow. Yeah. And and I, I learned this through a friend of mine that was talking about uh, infrastructure, and he said, well, what happens is the way we tax, there's a bond the government gets issued, and that gets released in a certain sequence. That's why you only see, that's why construction projects, that's why you go by down the freeway and you see like five people on a mile stretch. Conversely, look at China, you know, if they want to put four miles in, there's 2000 people on it and it's there within a few days. It's crazy. Yeah. So that's, I think that's some of the limiting factors. And then again, back to the point of bureaucracy and, and permitting, like it's so hard to build stuff anymore. Uh, yeah. I just think it was a lot easier back in the day. So it's really cool and, and that you're able to leverage something that exists because that that way you just don't have to deal with that hurdle. Yeah. If, if I had a different skill set than being a technologist, if I was a good politician, that's why I would work oh. on permit reform. <laughs> I would be a terrible politician. I, I, I probably would yeah. just pull my hair out all day because the lack of yeah, progress, uh, I, I just yeah. couldn't do it. Well, I know one of the things you also do is sequester carbon. Yeah, that's uh, right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm really excited about this too. So. We pull the carbon out of hydrogen, right? And the big question is, what do you do with the carbon? Generally, this issue that we're using a lot of fossil fuels and we need to avoid the CO2 going into the atmosphere, many folks have worked on it already. Usually what people are trying to do is to capture the CO2 in its gaseous form. And then that takes a lot of energy to capture, but that's an offending thing you want to get rid of. And then since CO2 is not particularly useful, it's used in niche applications, like things like, uh, actually like a Coca-Cola bottle, right? Or some CO2 that forms the bubbles. But generally, uh, the solution is to spend a lot of money to inject it into used up oil and gas wells and to try to keep it underground and hope it doesn't bubble back up. Yeah, just bury it, yeah. Yeah, if you just hear that story, you understand this is really hard, right? It's a gas. Of course it wants to bubble back up. Yeah. Uh, even if you store it in the ground. But that's the ideas that folks have uh, thought of so far. However, we are doing something weird and interesting, and I think a lot more promising because we're pulling the carbon out from the natural gas before it's even combusted, which means CO2 never gets created in the first place, which is first of all, really good. And second of all, what we're left with is actually solid carbon. So here, just to bring some props right here, here's a jar of the carbon that modern hydrogen has captured. You can look, it's just literally, you know, carbon is black, right? It's, it's just powdery carbon, right? Mm -hmm. And so to blow your mind, right? We, I think one of the reasons why we've been so slow to address CO2, because we've been treating the atmosphere as a giant waste dump. CO2, also a gas, it's invisible. So you don't really see how much you're polluting, but this jar of carbon is equivalent to the CO2 that your home heating furnace 
would have created in just 30 seconds. So just in every 30 seconds, you're dumping like this much CO2 equivalents into the atmosphere. Wow. So that's why global warming is happen, happening, right? Like you think, oh, the Earth's ginormous. How can human beings affect it? But we are dumping so much CO2 so much. into the atmosphere. So, but yeah, like the, the neat thing, right? Because it's a carbon, this is a useful material that's actually already used in the economy. The specific name of the term is, is a material called carbon black. It's about... I think last year, a $17 billion per year commodity, been used in many applications. So for example, just to show you some, some things, right? Uh, today, like our biggest market application is in asphalt. You, you know how roads are black? It's because it has a lot of carbon in it. So we just basically sell our carbon for, for roads. And this carbon is just locked in as a solid in the roads. That'll never turn back into CO2. It's a bit heavy, but like this is like a sample of the, of the asphalt we can create with the carbon that we've sequestered. Today, we have carbon in asphalt, in, in roads and driveways and stuff like that in projects, California, Oregon, Washington. I think this, you know, we're about to do our first project on the East Coast in the next week as well. That's pretty cool. Another use for carbon is actually ink. If you've ever seen like the, the black powder in, in your printer, that's because it's, uh, it's just uh, carbon powder. So. Just, this is not like a huge market, uh, just as a demo, right? We've even made crayons with our carbon. Another big use is rubber. So your tires are also black because your tire by contents, that rubber by content is about 30% just carbon. So this is just carbon. So this, sorry, this is rubber made with our, our carbon black. And uh, yeah, so there's all sorts of applications that this carbon can be used to. But I think the key thing, right, is now it's an economically valuable product. We sell our carbon for a profit. We're not spending money to get rid of CO2 as a waste and storing it into the ground. And so that, that changes the whole economics yeah. of what you can imagine to deal with this, uh, this issue of carbon. Well, and I love how you're turning it into other things because there's a whole industry growing out there where yeah. people are just capturing it. Like you said, storing it in the ground, like, uh, yeah. like, like what can you turn it into for a profit? And I mean, if you think the amount of roadways, uh, roadways that are out there are rubber, I mean, how many cars do we have out there? Right. Like that, that can be a huge industry. Can you use it for like thinking of more construction like cement? Oh, yeah. So cement is one of the newer applications for this. So to give you a sense, right, this is cement we've made with some of our carbon black inside. Mm -hmm. So it actually strengthens the cement, which is really cool because that means you can use less cement. You save money. And also cement is one of the highest CO2 emitting parts of concrete. And so you're also offsetting that CO2 emission, uh, but it does have some side effects, primarily of which is it turns the concrete black. So we're also exploring this market application, but I'm sort of assuming that it'll have to go into places where the concrete is not visible because people are just not used to or maybe dark it's okay. colored concrete. You know, I mean, with cement, I've talked about this on a previous episode too. I mean, it's the second most consumed substance on the planet next to water. Yep. And so, man, I mean, if you could just tap into that, I mean, there's a huge application for that right there. And I think cement's just interesting because back to reinventing, you know, we're still using the same cement mix that was invented uh, from like port, you know, what was the name? Uh, I forgot the name of the, the, the company. Yeah, Port Portland Cement. cement. Yeah, in like the 1700s, right? Like yeah. it's the same mix. And so I often think about feedstock. I often think a lot about our waste stream and trying to figure yeah. out like, okay, how do you kind of take that value that's still in that waste stream and reroute it back into other things and kind of like what you're doing, which is great because now you have a truly circular economy. You know, I, I look back, you know, I hope in the next 20 years, we look back at this time 
is like the the climate sustainability revolution. I'm pretty optimistic on that because there's a lot of people doing like with what you're you know you're mm -hmm. doing. I just feel like we need to do it faster. But I think there's so many cool things that are happening out there, and you see this you know from government to business. You see I see a lot more people that are more mindful of these things and really paying attention. And so my hope is you just get more of these things moving and, you know, what got us here, we you know it's like 75 years post industrial revolution. It's awesome. We've all benefited from a lot of these things, but I don't think we really thought about the downside of some of the, some of the systems and processes we put in place. We were just, you know, just build, building our economy. You know, the U S and now is a, tw a $22 trillion GDP country. Yeah which is awesome. But I also think it's time to kind of rethink things. I agree. I love what you said about the circular economy, right? It's actually one of the most beautiful things as an environmentalist, what OfferUp has done, right? Because we, we, we talk a lot about CO2, but that's not the only damage that mankind is inflicting on the planet. Like generally, we're mining a lot of stuff. We're harvesting a lot, a, a, a lot of forests. We're making a lot of land. We got to find a way to get by and use less stuff. And I think so OfferUp, Facilitating the circular economy, just like reusing stuff in the economy is incredible. And it goes into like what we're doing with the carbon, right? Like if we're going to, if we're going to deal with all this energy issues, uh, then we kind of have to be a bit smarter about how we're using all the different components, right? Like try, try to make useful byproducts instead of waste. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, if you think of, if you look at your crystal ball and you kind of think about the next five to 10 years, like what are the things that get you excited when you get up in the morning? You're like, hey, this is so fun. And you, you, you're pretty optimistic about it. I, my, my dumb answer is like the, the two metrics I sort of track in the company and in my head ultimately is like, you know, revenue go up into the right and CO2 avoid it go up and into the right. For us, it's, it's, it's fairly simple that way. And the next, to be a bit more specific, right? Things that I'm excited about in the next decade include we're, we're starting to do international expansion. Like we're, we're, I still think the USA is one of our biggest opportunities, but I said there's 3 million miles of gas pipelines in the United States, but natural gas is one of the biggest energy sources across the planet. It's like, you'll find like the UK much smaller. UK is like a state, right? Uh, compared to the size of the United States, but United Kingdom has like, I think about half a million miles of gas pipes, Germany, roughly the same, Japan, Korea, and all that. So we're starting to do our international expansion. So try to uh, roll out the solution across the world. I think that's very exciting. I also think now that there's a lot more incentive and regular pressure to decarbonize industry. So talking about making stuff, right? One of the things that hydrogen is being thought of as an application, it goes beyond like planes and trucks. One of the challenge is high grade heat, meaning high temperature heat. We heat our homes, your hot water is probably 60 Celsius. That's fine. There's many ways to do that. But like making concrete has a step that's 1500 Celsius. Making silicon in your phone chips has a step that's over a thousand Celsius. Goes without saying, making steel, copper, all sorts of metals, right? Molten vats of metals over a thousand Celsius. That high temperature heat is extremely hard to create. Today, we basically burn fossil fuels to do that. Mm -hmm. And so folks are interested, you know, what else can we burn to create such a high temperature heat? Hydrogen is one of the most promising solutions. And so we're also excited about producing hydrogen for that market. And I think that market is going to get a, a lot more attention, right? Like people are starting to see, okay, it's not just about electricity, like all these materials, how are we making them and how can we decarbonize that? So I think that, that, that market is just at its beginning inflection point, but that's going to be a big attention area for for companies and policymakers going forward, and that will accelerate adoption of hydrogen. 
do you think one of your biggest challenges, I mean, there's so much opportunity. It's kind of like, okay, how do you pick kind of which market to get after? Because you, like you said, there's so many applications to what, what you're doing. The certain, I mean, clearly you probably find more interest from ones that are clearly motivated or how do you kind of prioritize all those opportunities? <laughs> uh, great question. I think we're going to uh, eventually get kicked in and asked for doing too many things. But our, our way of cutting the Gordian knot a lot of our biggest customers and supporters are utilities. So in some sense, we're agnostic to the use case. We work with it. The utilities basically, you know, buy our technology and then they can, they can then use our technology, to produce hydrogen themselves, and they can sell it to all sorts of customers, whether it's electric hydrogen or zero avia making hydrogen planes, they want a refueling hydrogen line or as heavy industry or some commercial building that was a decarbonized steam. The utility can handle a lot of that and we just provide a technology. And then we also sell the carbon to, to make extra money and make sure it turns into sequestered material. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else we didn't cover. One thing I always like to try to understand for everybody that's watching is like, what can the average person actually do? So in this case, like when you think about hydrogen, is there anything that people can actually do that really make an impact other than voting for the right politician, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Like in the case of hydrogen, like we're. I think hydrogen makes more sense in commercial and industrial applications. Uh, there are folks trying to make hydrogen work in residential applications. There's some projects in the UK, some in the US, some in Germany, but I'm a little bit more, far less aggressive on that. I, I think there are other solutions for decarbonization at your home. So really uh, for, for helping out in the hard to decarbonize sectors, I think one, it's more about, it is more about politics and also voting with your wallets and your impact, right? It, it's one thing like you know, buy green, buy products that come not only just from green energy, but green materials, for example, right? The asphalt made from our carbon is way cleaner, much less CO2 compared to normal asphalt. So uh, you can support that either by in your own projects, but also probably in voting for your city councils and uh, working with their local policymakers, like all the projects that go to road, be supportive of new projects being built with green materials. You can also do that in terms of what you buy from the supermarket. Uh, but yeah, I, I think at least in terms of the hydrogen game, because you're affecting commerce and industry, there will be more of the case where it's not like installing something in your own home. It's more about affecting how companies produce their goods and affecting how policymakers uh, mandate how companies should behave. I think that's a big, a big part. I wish policy and, and government was a little more aggressive, but part of my hope too is by reaching out and having a format like this where you engage the masses, now everyone's a little bit more knowledgeable, right? And so now mm -hmm. they can do that. And I think that's part of the challenge I know I had when I thought about climate was I want answers and why can't I just find this online, right? And so yeah. I do think there's a lot of opportunities to take this complex topic and then break it down and go, oh, now I actually understand. Like I understand what, you know, hydrogen, how we can tap into it. You know, I think there's a lot of complex things out there. Like I didn't know cement, for example, was a, the second large, largest consumed uh, thing on the planet next to water. And so, you know, I think as, if people are knowledgeable, then, then I hope people create more pressure and they can, you know, vote and, and, and make, make changes. Cause I think that it's going to take everybody. Like we can't wait for the government to act. Um, yeah. Business I think is kind of too fragmented but you need the masses to kind of groundswell around activity and say, Hey, enough is enough. And hopefully again, you just look out the window, right? So I still, I've been pretty vocal with climate <laughs> deniers these days. I'm like, okay, you're just not looking out the window. Forget about watching the news. I mean, you can say, I hate the news. Just look outside on what's happening. Like you cannot deny yeah. 
the impacts and, and what is actually occurring. This is not a this is not a natural ebb and flow. This is an up and to the right, and every year, as you know, like you know, I'm, yeah. I look out the window this week and smoke. Yeah. Six years in a row, I'm getting we're getting smoke now in Seattle. I've lived here yeah. my entire life. That never happened before. And you can just the, right. We can all see Mount Rainier from different parts from Seattle. You can just see the snow line move gradually up every year, right? And so, like it's. Uh, uh, you don't need to take the science, right? That's the nice thing about science. The whole point of science is you don't need to take the scientist's word for it. You can do the measurement yourself. There's an objective truth. You can just see it yourself. Yeah, you can see it. And I think that's always the challenge again, I think with the with kind of, you know, global warming and things like this is like, I actually think everything is just more severe. Like, I think we have actually have had the same number of fires, but then now they're burning much longer. And they're yeah. more severe because of how dry everything is. And in Seattle, it's been a, it's been a beautiful summer for the most part, but we only had rain one day out of the last two months, I think. So that becomes challenging. I've also been counting the number of fires. I live up on Cougar Mountain, and I can see pretty far. Just average fires. I've seen now seven fires, and this is not the forest burning. This is yards or buildings burning. And we watched one this week burn, and it's kind of sad. Like we watched the house was probably 6,000 square feet. That thing, yeah. we watched it burn for two hours and, and it was such a rager. The fire department just stands there. They let it burn. And then eventually that once they know that it's kind of burnt out, a lot of the energy is gone, then they'll go in, but they don't, they don't try to put it out right away because it's too far gone. But I've seen so many of those now because how dry everything is around here. Yeah. How have you, what other, I'm curious, what other effects of the general climate change have you already seen in your life and your business, right? Like we've all seen some versions, but I always love hearing stories of like other aspects of like how that's already affected you. Well, I think for me personally, just again, awareness, uh, and I, I've always been really clear. I am not a super crazy sustainability person. Uh, I'm very mindful of the planet. I care about the planet. I like to walk out in the woods, but I don't go above and beyond the convenience of my life to say, oh man, I'm never going to go on a plane, for example, right? And yeah. so, but as I've gotten more into this topic, well, I started to look at everything in my life and, and started to really think about like, okay, what are the impacts of things? And I do, I say this on a lot of episodes. I don't, I never have a plastic water bottle ever. Even if I go to a business meeting, they offer it. I said, nope, I'd rather just, <laughs> I'd rather just be thirsty. Uh, yeah. Because of this is like, if you look at the, the plastics in our oceans, 25% yeah. of it comes from plastic water bottles and yeah. plastic grocery shopping bags. So if everybody did two things in their life, use the reusable bags and use yep. uh, reusable bottles, you can make an impact. Yeah. Because again, I hear that from a lot of people. Oh, it's such a complicated thing. How am I going to make an impact? You can. You can do one little thing right now. All of us can go do that. I'm also mindful of just the products that we use Ridwell here, you know, Ridwell. Yeah. And so they, you know, all that plastic cellophane that you think, oh, where am I going to put this? You know, we, we've been using that. Uh, our laundry detergents are soaps. Uh, we re, we have now glass containers and these little teeny pills. Now we don't have the big tide, you know, the big ah, tide okay, anymore. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. You know, I think there's just a lot more uh, clothing. Uh, I haven't bought clothes in a long time. I'm, I'm mm. like, I don't need more t-shirts in the past. I'm like, Oh, you know, I could be, I like that t-shirt. Now I'm kind of like, no, I know how the impact of a t-shirt it's, it's pretty significant. Yeah. Actually. Well, fashion, fashion's terrible for the, for the planets and the climate. My company can't do anything about that. I, there's some people working on it, but I think it's like an under under love space. Pretty pretty hard to decarbonize, but the footprint's humongous. Ten percent of all CO two emissions come from clothing. Actually, yeah. more CO two emissions come from clothing humans than every method of transportation combined. Uh, and if you think of the, the curve, right, of how much clothes yeah. we actually have now, 
Yeah. Because it goes back to fast fashion. I hit the button, it comes to me. Yeah. And it's not just the clothing itself and the manufacturing of all that, but it's also the packaging. So if you yeah. think of the amount of waste, so 25% of all plastic waste comes from packaging. By yeah. 2026, we will we will ship 260 billion packages a year on the globe, which is crazy to think about, right? Yeah. So you know, these are all things like I could talk for days on things I've been learning and discovering. And I, I, mm. I'm generally a pretty curious person and generally pretty optimistic. But again, I look at everything kind of systemically as, as systems. I'm like, okay, wait, okay, this this is an issue because this is systems we've built for, you know, 20, 30, 40 yeah. years, which is fine. But how do we rethink those things? And that's why I keep going circular, right? I think a lot of value is locked up locally. How do you tap into that? You know, everything from like our waste stream, like think about the amount of waste we produce. It's crazy. Yeah. I see a lot of opportunity. I'm still, you know, generally really optimistic, but I think companies like yours are awesome, right? Because you're going to unlock some of these things that are going to be huge catalysts for change into the future. Yeah. <laughs> I think this, this, this is hopefully one of the, maybe the defining fights of our generation, but I think it's doable. In, in fact, I'd say, I'm not sure I'm an optimist. I try, I think I'm kind of like a realist or occasionally, you know, a closet pessimist, but uh, uh, there's been many things in the last 12 years on this trajectory of the climate fight that have uh, pleasant, I, I think if you just are objectively looking at data, yeah, like, it, Things are bad, but everything's trending the right way. Sure, like <laughs> I think about the Paris Climate Agreement, like this is what 2015, when all the nations came together and first agreed we're all gonna do something about it. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they set a target for like by 2050, we'll aim to net not like long term, don't exceed 1.5 Celsius, right? Like governments, right? Politicians, of course, set some very very long distance goal that you know they won't. Harder measure from today. <laughs> yeah, but I just remember 1.5 Celsius. We breached that this year. <laughs> <laughs> it's only 2023. We've already passed that. So yeah, we're, we're going to need a lot of help, a lot of work. And I think it's going to, even if you're not working in a climate tech company, uh, there, there's a lot you can do by just affecting, being aware, affecting your own purchasing behavior and uh, affecting the politics of all this, just by making this a bigger issue. Yeah, I agree. Well, Tony, thank you so much for being here. For anyone watching, check out, you can go to, you know, go to the, your website. It's really interesting, modernhydrogen.com. And just uh, appreciate the time and uh, what an interesting uh, topic. Thank you so much, Nick.